This episode is proudly brought to you by Liquid IV. Look, we all know staying hydrated is super important, whether you're putting in reps at the gym or going on a hot girl walk, which I do often. But did you know staying hydrated is also easy and convenient with Liquid IV? Seriously, these little pouches pack three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. I love this stuff. I use it every single day. You got to check it out. Real people, real flavor, real hydrating. Now, sugar-free. Grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco or get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code INVISIBLE at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you use promo code INVISIBLE at liquidiv.com. Hey everyone, we recently began offering our premium subscription show Invisible Choir Plus on Apple Podcasts. It's the very same premium content we've been offering at the $5 level over on Patreon since 2019. As a result, many listeners have expressed confusion or outright annoyance, and even a belief that our show has now in some way gone entirely behind a paywall. As a result, many have taken to Apple to leave us negative reviews expressing this inaccurate frustration. The reality is, Invisible Choir remains free. The regular ad-supported episodes will continue to be released everywhere for free every other Sunday. And our premium content continues to be released nearly every single week, as it has since 2019. The only difference is, those of you listening on Apple now see that premium content and the option to subscribe. So please, 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 if this is you, stop bashing us in the reviews. And if you listen to Invisible Choir and enjoy the show at all, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you listen. We understand that not everyone can pay for bonus content. That is why Invisible Choir remains a free ad-supported show. Though we would love to earn your business with an Invisible Choir Plus subscription, you may continue to listen every other Sunday for free, just as you have since the show's inception in 2019. Not a thing has changed with that schedule. So, thank you so much to our loyal listeners, new and old, sincerely. You make all of this possible. Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. And as I sat in that courtroom one day, I saw the ground open and I saw a hurling scream come out. And the blood of my brother and my sister-in-law, my brother Reggie and my sister-in-law Carol still cries out for justice. Back in the 1960s, a young woman named Carol and a man named James, better known by his nickname Reggie, were high school sweethearts. After graduating from Garrett High School in North Charleston, South Carolina, the two would eventually grow apart and go their separate ways in life. Reggie went on to join the U.S. Navy, where he would serve for a number of years all over the globe, including being stationed in Japan. He would marry, but that relationship ended almost as soon as it began, and after his return home from the military, Reggie relocated to Jacksonville, Florida, where he worked for the CSX railroad system. After many years of employment, he eventually returned home to Charleston, South Carolina. Carol would go on to work several different jobs herself. In fact, she was employed as a civil servant at the Citadel, a military college in Charleston, for over 25 years. In addition, she'd worked night shifts at a department store in town to supplement her income. During those years, just like Reggie, Carol would be married as well, twice. In 
twice actually. She became a mother in that time to a baby girl named Rhonda. However, Carol's second marriage nearly cost her her life. On February 18, 1987, Carol's husband shot her several times inside their West Ashley home before ultimately turning the weapon on himself. Her husband was killed by the self-inflicted gunshot blast, and while it was a miracle that she survived, it would unfortunately be the beginning of a long and winding road of hardships and tragedy to come. Carol was 43 at the time she was nearly murdered by her abusive husband. It would be a long road to recovery, but luckily she had her daughter Rhonda to help her once she returned home from the hospital. Even though she was only 10 years old at the time, Rhonda stuck by her mother in her time of greatest need, a theme that would run consistent throughout both of their lives. Eventually, Carol would gain enough strength to return back to work, and after two failed marriages, one of which nearly killed her, she wasn't interested in meeting another man anytime soon for obvious reasons. In fact, her daughter Rhonda didn't recall Carol being involved with anyone romantically for another 10 years into the future. Carol and her first love from high school, Reggie Sumner, hadn't seen or heard from the other for nearly two decades. Even so, the universe sure does have a funny way of bringing people together again, and the two of them would soon be reunited in the most storybook kind of way. In the year 2000, Reggie Sumner called his local TV provider to discuss some recent service issues. Unbeknownst to him, a woman named Carol just so happened to be working there part-time as a customer service representative. Carol immediately recognized Reggie's voice upon answering the call. Once he identified himself as Reggie Sumner, she asked if this was in fact the same Reggie Sumner from Garrett High School, class of 1962. The man replied back by saying that that was indeed him and that he was the same Reggie, to which Carol exclaimed, that he was talking to his ex-girlfriend from almost 40 years before. The stars had aligned, and this unique set of circumstances would ultimately spark the couple's newfound relationship, the rekindling of an old flame that had seemingly never been extinguished. The kindred souls, Carol and Reggie, would pick up right back where they left off. Six months after that call to a TV station's customer service line, the couple would marry in 2001, both now 57 years old. After a humble ceremony held in Carol's backyard at her West Ashley home, they'd soon buy their first home together, a condo in Ladson, South Carolina. Here, they would live happily for the next four years or so, but health complications would eventually plague both Reggie and Carol, worsening with each passing month. Carol had developed liver cancer. She also had hepatitis C, diabetes, osteoporosis, and fibromyalgia. At the time, she'd recently gone through chemotherapy treatment, and she was extremely weak and had trouble getting around. Health-wise, Reggie wasn't doing so well either. He could barely walk, his bones were brittle, and he'd recently suffered a broken leg and was confined to a leg brace. Like his new wife, Reggie was diabetic. Carol's daughter, Rhonda, lived about a half-hour drive up the road in Charleston and was sure to check in on the older couple frequently. If Rhonda wasn't stopping by the house, she was always sure to call on her mother at least once a day. While living in their Ladson condo, 61-year-old Carol and Reggie Sumner eventually came to know one of their neighbors, a younger woman named Tiffany Cole. Tiffany was in her 20s and was the stepdaughter of a good friend of both Reggie and Carol's. 
Her family lived only a few houses down. When they found out Tiffany was in the market for a used car, Reggie and Carol decided they wanted to help. Conveniently, the couple happened to be selling their Chevy Lumina, as they had just made plans to retire and move down to Florida. To Reggie, the move was a homecoming of sorts, as he had always hoped to one day return to Florida. He'd purchased a home in the Sunshine State years before while he was working for the railway in Jacksonville. Reggie knew it would be the perfect place to live out the rest of his years with the love of his life, Carol. And getting rid of what they didn't need and to help a friend in the process, it only made sense to sell the car to someone they knew and trusted. Tiffany Cole didn't have much cash up front, but the Sumners knew she was good for it. And so an arrangement was made. Carol and Reggie would sell their neighbor Tiffany the car and allow her to make monthly payments until it was paid off. In 2005, the Sumners handed Tiffany the car keys before heading off to start their new life together in sunny Jacksonville. Tiffany began making the car payments to Reggie and Carol. She would regularly take the 3-hour and 45-minute car ride in her newly acquired green Chevy Lumina to drop the cash off in person. The trio quickly built a rapport, and everything was going smoothly, until one evening later on that June in 2005. Tiffany Cole would again take her routine drive from South Carolina to Jacksonville, Florida, only this time she was joined by a friend, her new boyfriend of just over a month, 23-year-old Michael Jackson. No, not that Michael Jackson. During the visit to the Sumner's home in Florida, Tiffany and Michael were invited to stay the night. During the stay, the four of them got to talking, and at some point during the conversation, the Sumners mentioned that they had profited some $90,000 off the sale of their South Carolina condo. Reggie and Carol Sumner couldn't have known at the time, but revealing that information was the exact moment where the trajectory of their future together would forever change. The next morning, Tiffany Cole and Michael Jackson thanked Carol and Reggie for their hospitality. They then hopped in the green Chevy Lumina and headed back on their way to Charleston, South Carolina. About a month later, Carol's daughter Rhonda called her mother like she normally would. But beginning on July 5th, 2005, Carol suddenly stopped answering the calls. But just a few days later on July 8th, Carol's sister-in-law Alida made contact with her on the phone. Alita asked Carol if she and Reggie needed help moving a television, something her sister-in-law knew they'd been having recent troubles with. Over the phone, Carol told Alita that it was already taken care of and that some friends from Charleston, South Carolina were visiting and had already done so for. Without any cause for concern, Alita hung up the phone, but for some reason, Carol's daughter Rhonda still hadn't been able to make contact with her. Rhonda and Carol spoke every single day. And this was very out of the ordinary, and the fact that she wasn't answering didn't sit well with Rhonda. Rhonda made the decision to then inform Jacksonville police and requested a welfare check. However, police failed to stop by the residence. When Rhonda learned of this, she decided to travel from Charleston, South Carolina to Jacksonville to check on the couple herself. Rhonda arrived at her mother and Reggie's home on July 9th. After making entry to the home and calling out to Carol and Reggie, she quickly realized they were nowhere to be found. She then noticed a mess of food spread all throughout the kitchen, and there was an old leftover fried chicken dinner still out on the stove. The dog who the couple cared for deeply was also left unattended. 
But perhaps most concerning was that her mother's cane, surgical boot, wheelchair, day planner, and cell phone were all left behind inside the house. These were all things Carol needed and would never have left the home without. She had also discovered all of Carol and Reggie's medications were left behind. Given that both of them were in such poor health, Rhonda became increasingly anxious regarding their whereabouts. As she continued making her way throughout the home, she did a double-take after noticing various blue latex gloves had been thrown about and discarded on the floor. Also, Reggie and Carol's desktop computer tower was mysteriously missing. It was around this time Rhonda notified Jacksonville police for a second time and filed an official missing persons report, believing that the two 61-year-olds may have been the victims of foul play. Police finally entered the home on July 10, 2005. They learned from neighbors that there had been a suspicious vehicle seen in the Sumner's driveway in the days leading up to their disappearance. The car was first witnessed in the neighborhood sometime after July 4th. It was then definitively seen leaving and returning to the Sumner's driveway several times up until 11.30 p.m. the evening of July 8th. But the neighbor could never make out who the driver was or any of the passengers. The make and model of the vehicle was also unknown, but it was reported that it was some type of gray sports car. The Sumner's Lincoln Town car was also missing from their garage. During the early stages of the investigation into the missing 61-year-old couple, one of the first things authorities obtained was the Sumner's banking records. Naturally, they were looking to see if any unusual activity had occurred. According to their records, there had in fact been an inordinate amount of transactions beginning on July 9th, the same day Rhonda showed up at her mother and Reggie's home. The Sumners barely used their ATM cards, but all of a sudden, random withdrawals began occurring at various bank machines all over Jacksonville, according to their banking statements. Police combed through surveillance video from several of the ATM machines and eventually came across video of a man driving a gray Mazda RX-8 sports car. Whoever this man was was using the Sumner's stolen ATM card. It certainly wasn't the 61-year-old Reggie Sumner. Eventually, this person managed to rack up a total of $5,000 in withdrawals. He was clearly more able-bodied than Mr. Sumner was and appeared to be a man in his early to mid-twenties. Authorities were zeroing in on the suspect and the Mazda's movements, but it wouldn't be until several days later they were able to track his next location. Valuable time was ticking away in the search for Carol and Reggie Sumner. They were both without their daily medications, medicine both of them desperately needed, and no one had a clue of where they might be. Two days after Reggie and Carol had gone missing, an off-duty patrol officer noticed a car that seemed out of place. On July 10, 2005, while driving down a remote dirt road near his own home, the officer noticed an abandoned Lincoln town car with the rear end of the vehicle butted up against the thick wood line. At the time, he didn't think much of it or stopped to investigate. However, after hearing that the Lincoln matched the description of the car of the missing couple, that same police officer drove back to the scene two days later and radioed for backup. When they approached the vehicle, authorities noticed a $5 bill oddly stuck to a piece of duct tape on the ground. All of the Lincoln's windows had been rolled down and there was sand on the floorboards of the car's interior, along with more duct tape stuck to the fabric and the back seat. 
The car's VIN number was subsequently matched to the Sumner's car, and once police opened the trunk, any hope that Reggie and Carol may eventually be found safe immediately diminished. They opened the latch only to reveal four separate shovels, each covered in sand. This episode is proudly brought to you by EarthBreeze. Hey, if you've ever wondered why laundry detergent comes in those massive jugs, you're not alone. I can't stand that. Did you know that 91% of those inconvenient heavy jugs end up in landfills and oceans, harming our planet and marine life? You guys, seriously, I have been waiting for someone to revolutionize the way we do laundry, and I finally found it. EarthBreeze. EarthBreeze Ego Sheets look just like a dryer sheet, but they're not. They're actually liquidless laundry detergent sheets that dissolve 100% in any wash cycle, hot or cold. There's no measuring, no mess, and no heavy lifting. That's right, no massive jugs. I absolutely love these things for two simple reasons. Number one, they're easy and convenient to use. Number two, they save a ton of space in our already tiny laundry room. But most importantly, you still get a powerful clean. EarthBreeze is tough on stains, fights odors, and my clothes come out clean every single time. Trust me, there is no reason not to switch. Right now, my listeners can subscribe to EarthBreeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash invisible to get started. That's earthbreeze.com slash invisible for 40% off. earthbreeze.com slash invisible. This episode is also proudly brought to you by Fabric by Gerber Life. All right, if you're a parent, it's no secret that you have people who rely on you. As parents, we all think about the basics, food, shelter, and safety. But what about financial security? Do you have life insurance so they're protected after you're gone? Don't wait until it's too late. With Fabric by Gerber Life, you can help protect your children's future right now by providing them with the financial security they deserve. Fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Look, I never seriously considered the value or necessity of life insurance myself until my own dad passed away unexpectedly at the age of 51. And now that I've got my own children, it is a top priority. And with Fabric, it's simple. Get your personalized quote in just minutes and then apply when it's convenient for you. It's all online and on your schedule. You could go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash invisible. That's meetfabric.com slash invisible. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash invisible. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company. Not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Later that same day on July 12th, 2005, the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office received various phone calls from a man claiming to be Reggie Sumner. When authorities called the number back, the person who identified himself as Reggie told the detective a friend of his had informed him that he and his wife's house had been robbed. He also mentioned hearing news of their Lincoln Town car being stolen from the garage. The man went on to tell law enforcement over the phone that both he and Carol were fine and that they were in Delaware for a funeral. The call was being recorded and authorities played along informing the assumed Reggie Sumner imposter that he was in luck and that the Lincoln Town car had already, in fact, been recovered. 
The detective went on to ask the man a few simple questions, like the name of his dog, the airport and airline he and Carol used to fly to Delaware, and where they were staying. Interestingly enough, the town Reggie responded back with didn't even exist, and the airport he said he and Carol flew out of only handled cargo flights, and not commercial airlines. Whoever the man was on the phone struggled to sell his bit even further, when he inquired about his bank accounts, explaining to the detective that his ATM cards were no longer working. The man claiming to be Reggie even asked the detective if he could help him get them working again. Law enforcement then assured the man that they would be helping him out. When the detective asked to speak with Carol, the phone was handed over and a woman's voice was soon heard on the line. And just like the man claiming to be Reggie, Whoever this person was on the other end of the phone didn't sound like they were over 60 years old. They sounded much younger, although the woman did try to play the part of a tired and sickly older lady. To this woman's benefit, she at least had more factual information handy to provide detectives as opposed to her partner in crime. The woman claiming to be Carol spoke of her family in Charleston, South Carolina and having cancer. She even provided her social security number over the telephone, and after reassuring law enforcement that the couple was safe and sound, explaining that they were simply away and out of town in Delaware, they said their goodbyes and then hung up. The Jacksonville Sheriff's Department then contacted the Sumner's bank, just like they had promised. And despite the obvious fraudulent activity, the police requested their accounts be reopened and remain active so they could continue to track where these people were actually located when they were making the withdrawals. You would think whoever was using the Sumner's ATM card couldn't possibly be dumb enough to continue doing so, but lucky for the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office, they were, and after the bank account trap was set, authorities made another call, this time to the U.S. Marshal Service. With their combined resources, authorities were eventually able to track the fake Carol and Reggie's number to a Charleston, South Carolina address. Cell phone towers indicated that the same device had made calls on July 8, 2005 in Jacksonville, Florida off of Reed Avenue where the Sumners lived. Those calls were made between the hours of 9.49 and 10.15 p.m. Another went out in the town of McClenny a few hours later a town 30 miles west of Jacksonville at approximately 12.50 a.m. Investigators also learned that the same cell phone had called a company named Triangle Rental Car in Charleston. And after contacting the rental company, police learned that a gray Mazda RX-8 sports car had been rented just a few days before to a woman named Tiffany Cole. The rental period of the car had already expired and the balance was past due, but the Mazda had yet to have been returned to the lot. The rental company told authorities they too had recently begun tracking down the Mazda via the car's internal GPS system, as they now considered it stolen. But the GPS couldn't track in real time, though they did provide location updates intermittently. One of the car's logged GPS coordinates placed the Mazda at the Sumner's residence on July 8th. Another placed it at the site of one of the ATM withdrawals, corroborating evidence police had gathered from days before. Eventually, the Mazda was tracked down and located at an abandoned office building parking lot, not far from where it was rented. After learning Tiffany Cole had a prior relationship with the Sumners, and that the car in question was rented under her name, it wasn't long before investigators showed up knocking at her door. 
nearly four hours away from the Sumner home back in Charleston, South Carolina. Tiffany's brother David answered the door, only to be met by several members of law enforcement. Surely understanding the gravity of the situation, he ultimately gave up his sister and led them directly to Tiffany Cole's location. Her brother told police that Tiffany was staying at a nearby Best Western Hotel in North Charleston with some friends. Before their arrival, investigators confirmed that two rooms had been reserved at the hotel, again under the name Tiffany Cole. On July 14, 2005, authorities descended upon both of the rooms. Inside, they would find 23-year-old Tiffany Ann Cole, her boyfriend, 23-year-old Michael Jackson, and another man, 18-year-old Alan Wade. After patting the suspects down, authorities found the Sumner's ATM card located in Michael Jackson's back pants pocket. After all three were taken into custody and search warrants were obtained, Authorities located several items belonging to the Sumners in both hotel rooms. Carol and Reggie's driver's license were also there, along with credit cards, checkbooks, personal mail, and other documents that included social security numbers, AOL account usernames, and personal passwords. There was also a collection of newly purchased jewelry as well as a recently purchased laptop, the remnants of an apparent spending spree. Authorities also discovered a check from the Sumners made out to Alan Wade in the amount of $8,000. In the room Tiffany Cole had been staying in, they also came across a disposable camera. The photographs, once developed, showed Tiffany Cole, Michael Jackson, Alan Wade, and another woman partying and seemingly living their best lives. It was later determined that these photographs were taken in Myrtle Beach weeks before the Sumners even went missing. Authorities also located a key ring in Tiffany's room belonging to one of the Sumners. In the parking lot of the Best Western, they also found Tiffany's green Chevy Lumina, the very same car the Sumners sold her months before. In the trunk, they found a rare coin collection belonging not to Tiffany, but to Carol and Reggie. North Charleston police now had three individuals in custody, but what they didn't have was the location of the missing 61-year-olds, Carol and Reggie Sumner. After learning of the arrest, Detective Meacham, the Jacksonville detective who actually spoke with the two individuals on the phone, who were claiming to be the Sumners just days before, immediately made his way to South Carolina. It was Detective Meacham who would be the man to formally interview Tiffany Cole for the very first time. One of the things he confronted her with right off the bat were the fake phone calls made to his department. Tiffany confessed to this aspect of the crime right away. She confirmed that it was indeed her pretending to be Carol on the other end of the line, but explained that she was instructed to lie by her boyfriend, Michael Jackson, a.k.a. the fake Reggie Sumner. She told the detective that following her and her boyfriend's visit to the Sumner home together, they began devising a plan to rob them of their cash. She said that in the month leading up to their disappearance, Tiffany, Michael Jackson, Alan Wade, and a fourth man, 20-year-old Bruce Nixon began conspiring together. Nixon, who was still at large, was a friend of Alan Wade's. This was the first time authorities heard the name Bruce Nixon, as up until this point they were unaware there was a fourth party. Tiffany went on to say that she thought they were simply going to steal the couple's ATM cards, get the cash, and that was it. She said that her boyfriend made an effort to keep her in the dark regarding the many logistics of the crime. 
She then went on to tell Detective Meacham that after partying in Myrtle Beach, the group stopped at a flea market and admitted to purchasing pocket knives and BB guns with the intention of using them during the robbery. Tiffany Cole also went into great detail about what happened next, but the one thing she kept repeating was that she didn't know anyone was going to wind up dead. After Tiffany Cole ratted out her accomplices, as well as the last of the remaining suspects, 20-year-old Bruce Nixon was arrested days later on July 16, 2005. Nixon confessed to his involvement and led investigators to the bodies of Carol and Reggie Sumner that very same day. The Sumner's bodies were found days later in a shallow grave in Charlton County, Georgia. They had been buried alive. Bruce Nixon brought homicide detectives to Charlton County, a remote spot on the Florida-Georgia line roughly 35 miles from Carol and Reggie's Jacksonville home. After exhuming their bodies from a shallow man-made ditch, the Sumners were found in moderate stages of decomposition, their bodies still in the kneeling position. Carol and Reggie had duct tape on their wrists, but had apparently freed themselves sometime right before they died. At the crime scene, investigators would also recover empty cigarette packs, beer cans, and spent plastic casings from the toy gun. The autopsy would reveal that the cause of death was from mechanical asphyxia and smothering, as dirt and soil had clogged in the back of the Sumner's airways and was found in their mouths, tracheas, and esophaguses. The medical examiner concluded that the weight of dirt placed on top of the victims also compressed their diaphragms, making it even more difficult to breathe. In short, the Sumners were in fact buried alive, resulting in one of the most cruel and unusual homicides the states of Florida and Georgia had ever seen. A neighbor tells family that she remembers seeing a strange car come and go from the Sumners' house, and family says that they think that Carol and Reggie probably were just being nice, allowing the group to stay overnight so they didn't have to make the trip to and from Charleston all in one day. On August 18, 2005, a Duval County grand jury handed down a six-count indictment for Michael Jackson, Bruce Nixon, Alan Wade, and Tiffany Cole, including two counts of first-degree murder, two counts of armed kidnapping, and two counts of armed robbery. Bruce Nixon would wind up taking a plea deal almost immediately and agreed to plead guilty to two counts of second-degree murder in exchange for his testimony against all three of his co-defendants. For his cooperation, he'd be looking at a sentence of anywhere from 52 years to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Tiffany Cole, Michael Jackson, and Alan Wade, on the other hand, were all facing a potential death sentence. This episode is proudly brought to you by Rocket Money. So, has anyone noticed a new trend lately? It's easier than ever to sign up for that monthly subscription. And then if, for whatever reason, you no longer need or want the service, they make it excessively difficult to cancel it. Why? This is so annoying. But what if I told you there's an easier way? It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. Seriously, I love the Rocket Money app because it puts all of my subscriptions, monthly and those all-too-easy-to-forget annual ones, into one easy-to-navigate app. I can also put them to task in negotiating a lower rate for key services. 
I've already used Rocket Money to get a discounted rate for my home internet service provider and just today started the process to lower our monthly wireless service provider fee. Look, over 80% of people have forgotten about subscriptions they've signed up for. And chances are you're one of them, like that Stars app that you use to watch just one show. Yeah, me too. Rocket Money will quickly and easily find your subscriptions for you. And for any you don't want to pay for anymore, just hit cancel and Rocket Money will cancel it for you. It's that easy. So stop throwing your money away. Cancel unwanted subscriptions and manage your expenses the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash invisible. That's rocketmoney.com slash invisible. Rocketmoney.com slash invisible. Tiffany Cole's boyfriend, Michael Jackson, would be tried first out of the group. And on May 1st, 2007, opening statements at his trial began. And while the facts known up to this point were already horrific in nature, Bruce Nixon's testimony would ultimately reveal the true depravity in which all four of these individuals engaged in. Between Tiffany Cole's initial statements to detectives, Bruce Nixon's testimony read aloud by the state prosecutor at Michael Jackson's trial, and the many case file documents painstakingly researched for this episode, the following is a full, detailed breakdown of what actually happened to Carol and Reggie Sumner. The plan to rob the Sumners was devised after Tiffany Cole and Michael Jackson met at their home together in June of 2005 for the purpose of making the Chevy Lumina car payment. During that visit, they canvassed the inside of the Sumners' Jacksonville residence. Cole and Jackson witnessed what they viewed as expensive furnishings, and after hearing how the couple profited nearly $100,000 from the sale of their South Carolina condo, the planning stages of this gruesome crime began. Sometime between that drive back to South Carolina in the green Chevy Lumina and their return home, Tiffany and her relatively new boyfriend began discussing how they were going to pilfer all of Carol and Reggie Sumner's valuables. Once back in Charleston, Jackson allegedly recruited his good friend, Alan Wade. Alan Wade then recruited his cousin-slash-friend, Bruce Nixon. Less than a month later, a plan had officially been solidified and the group of four was ready to put it into action. But first, they would travel over five hours north to celebrate their newfound fortune before they'd even accomplished anything, though Bruce Nixon did not attend this particular celebratory trip. According to the prosecution, the group of friends spent a week there partying and spending money, anticipating that a big payday was on the horizon. On the way back down to Charleston, the toy pellet guns and knives were purchased at a flea market, According to Nixon's testimony, Michael Jackson at one point allegedly told his partners in crime that he planned to kill the Sumners by injecting them with a fatal dose of some sort of illicit substance. In addition, he promised his accomplices that they would all split the earnings evenly, which at the time was believed to be a total of around $50,000 cash. Days before the abduction and subsequent murders, Bruce Nixon stole four shovels from various properties around his neighborhood. The group of four then traveled to the remote woods of southern Georgia, where they pre-dug a six-by-four-foot-wide grave at dusk, the very same crude hole where the Sumners would wind up being buried alive. Bruce Nixon and Alan Wade were the primary diggers, aided by Michael Jackson, while Tiffany Cole held the flashlight. Later that night, they went to Alan Wade's house, but were soon kicked out, because Wade's mother considered Michael Jackson a bad influence on her son. 
which of course now would be considered an understatement to say the least. Over the next few days, the crew would gather their supplies in preparation for the job. Just after midnight on July 7th, 2005, Jackson, Wade, and Cole visited a 24-hour Walmart where Cole would purchase rubber gloves for the crime. The next day was the night of the murders. All four members of the group visited an Office Max supply store at about 8.30 p.m. that night. There, they would buy a roll of duct tape and a large roll of plastic wrap. Tiffany Cole had already been cruising around town in the rented Mazda by this point, the very getaway car she ingeniously rented under her actual legal government name. At around 10 o'clock the evening of July 8, 2005, it was time. The group drove to the Sumner home, and after casing the neighborhood, Alan Wade and Bruce Nixon would hop out of the Mazda and knock on the Sumner's front door, both of them wearing latex gloves. Wade had tucked the duct tape in his waistband while Bruce Nixon concealed the toy gun. Tiffany Cole remained in the driver's seat of the Mazda outside of the Sumner's residence with her boyfriend Michael Jackson. After all, the Sumner's knew who Tiffany Cole and Michael Jackson were from their past visit, so they hung back in the shadows so as not to be recognized and blow the group's cover. Once one of the Sumners came to the door, Wade and Nixon asked if they could use their phone, and as they were welcomed in by the caring couple, the two men pushed their way through the front entryway door and brandished the toy guns. The landline phone was then ripped from the wall, and both men commanded the 61-year-old couple to keep quiet, announcing that this was a robbery. Alan Wade then grabbed Reggie Sumner and forcefully sat him in a chair. Carol was made to sit on the couch as she cried aloud pleading with the intruders not to hurt them. Reggie and Carol were then taken into a spare bedroom where they were blindfolded, gagged, and bound with duct tape. Wade and Nixon then rifled through the documents inside the home, frantically looking for the couple's banking information. And while they did find their bank account routing and checking account numbers, they couldn't find the ATM PIN number they were so desperately looking for. Wade and Nixon then sought Michael Jackson's assistance, at which point he entered the home to help them look. The pin number was ultimately never found, but the Sumner's car keys were. So Wade, Nixon, and Jackson then dragged the coin collection, checkbook, and other documents outside and into the car in hopes the pin number might be listed elsewhere. Next, Wade and Nixon escorted Reggie and Carol out of their residence and into the garage, where the couple's vehicle was parked. Nixon and Wade then forced the both of them into the trunk of the Lincoln Town car. The trunk was then locked shut. Alan Wade proceeded into the driver's seat of the Lincoln while Wade the passenger seat. Michael Jackson then rejoined Tiffany Cole in the Mazda. The Lincoln then pulled out of the garage while the rented Mazda followed close behind. The two vehicles then left the neighborhood in tandem, all six people, including the Sumners, unknowingly en route to their pre-dug shallow grave. On the way there, Jackson and Nixon began communicating via Nextel walkie-talkies. Tiffany Cole would later claim this was the very first time she learned that the Sumners were in the trunk and that they were going to be killed, which, of course, as we know, is likely complete bullshit. With that being said, there was one thing she actually didn't know, and that was that the Sumners' Lincoln town car was out of fuel. The possibility of this small hiccup apparently had never been taken into account in their plan. The Lincoln had two people in their 60s locked in the trunk after all, and they needed to get fuel and fast. 
Bruce Nixon would soon pull off at a nearby gas station to remedy the issue, before getting back on the road to the shallow grave. The crew had previously decided that if law enforcement at any point began to tail them, Cole and Jackson would speed off in the front of the Lincoln to create a diversion, believing the police would then wind up chasing the rented sports car instead of the Lincoln town car, thus giving Wade and Nixon just enough time to quietly get away. In all fairness, this was probably the most well-thought-out aspect of this entire senseless and despicable crime. When the group finally arrived at the gravesite, Tiffany Cole parked the Mazda by the roadway and turned off the engine. She remained there in the driver's seat while Michael Jackson hopped out and into the Lincoln with the others. In the town car, Nixon, Jackson, and Wade then made their way onto the dirt road and into the deep woods. Nixon backed the car up to the ditch they'd dug just days before, and the three argued momentarily about what was going to happen next and who was going to do what. When the trunk was opened, they noticed that Reggie and Carol had broken free from their duct tape restraints and the pieces covering their mouths had been removed. According to Nixon's testimony, they were seen hugging one another and heard quietly praying. Michael Jackson became furious and ordered Bruce Nixon to reapply the duct tape to both victims' wrists, but only tighter this time. Bruce Nixon complied and then allegedly walked back to the Masta to wait with Tiffany Cole. Michael Jackson also made several trips back and forth from the Mazda to the gravesite. Once he returned to the woods, Alan Wade and Michael Jackson dragged Reggie and Carol Sumner from the trunk of their car and pushed them into the hole. Jackson then revealed a yellow pad of paper and a pen. He ordered the Sumners to give them their ATM PIN number. After they did, Jackson took the time to verify this information by making a phone call to their bank right there near the shallow grave. He punched in the couple's PIN number on a cell phone keypad, verifying that they were in fact telling the truth and that this was their PIN number. But even after getting the information they so desperately wanted, and even though they now had full access to the Sumner's bank accounts, they still wouldn't let the couple live. Alan Wade and Michael Jackson ignored the couple's cries for help and began shoveling dirt on top of them. They kept shoveling until the soil reached their mouths and eventually covered the top of their heads. They then continued piling dirt on top of them until the Sumners were no longer visible at all. Eventually, their screams became muffled and Jackson heard Carol moan from under the dirt. Reggie and his wife Carol were then left to die a slow and torturous death. The total time spent in the woods that night lasted just over an hour. Once the two men were satisfied with the horrific acts they'd just committed, they threw the shovels in the trunk of the Sumner's Lincoln and then got in, drove off the beaten path, and met the two others in the Mazda by the roadside. All four of them then drove off in the dead of night, just having committed a horrific double murder. After fleeing the scene, the group traveled 20 miles from the gravesite to Sanderson, Florida, once they arrived at the remote spot, they wiped down the Lincoln and dumped the car where it would eventually be discovered by the off-duty police officer. All four then got into the Mazda and took off. From there, they drove just over a half an hour to Jacksonville, where Michael Jackson began withdrawing more money from the Sumner's bank account. Later on the same night of the murders, the group settled at a nearby hotel. Tiffany Cole then went back to Walmart, where she purchased a bottle of Clorox bleach and more latex gloves. 
Brazenly, that very same evening, Tiffany Cole and Alan Wade went back to the Sumner residence before anyone even knew the couple was missing. Alan Wade and Tiffany Cole attempted to clean the inside of their home before stealing the Sumner's computer and some additional jewelry. All of these items would later be brought to a pawn shop and sold for cash. The following morning on July 9th, 2005, Bruce Nixon left the group and returned to his home in Baker County, Florida. That evening, he attended a house party where he proceeded to take drugs from an assortment of multicolored pills he had in a Ziploc bag. Throughout the night, Nixon allegedly bragged about how he had just killed an older couple to his friends and revealed that they'd been buried alive. Nixon also allegedly flashed over $200 in cash in the form of $20 bills, flaunting the stolen money that belonged to the Sumners. In regards to defendant Michael Jackson, well, he was screwed arguably more than anyone. His co-defendant, Bruce Nixon, would ultimately be the proverbial nail in his coffin, or the pounds of dirt in his proverbial shallow grave, if you will. But even if Nixon hadn't rolled on his partner in crime, there was more than enough evidence to solidify Jackson's fate. Despite having hastily scrubbed down the Lincoln before abandoning it, Michael Jackson and Tiffany Cole's fingerprints were found all over the unused roll of plastic wrap located in the Sumner's car. The jury would also hear and watch recordings of Michael Jackson meeting with Jacksonville detectives, one interview that he specifically requested himself. After his arrest, Jackson wanted to make a deal. In the beginning of the tape, before investigators even entered the room, he can be heard laughing and singing to himself. Once the interview begins, Jackson asks detectives what he can do in order to receive a lesser sentence. Plain and simple. What do I gotta do? What do I gotta say? Point this, this, and this. And the recording investigators can be heard telling him there's no way he's getting out of this, at which point Jackson begins to deflect blame off of himself and paint Tiffany Cole as the alleged mastermind behind the evil plan. That's when she started telling me about how much money these people had. He was right about one thing. Tiffany Cole was the only true link to the Sumners. No one else knew them personally before she introduced them to Jackson. Still, that fact wouldn't help him much in the end. During Michael Jackson's trial, Bruce Nixon was eventually cross-examined. The defense made sure to make note that it was actually Nixon driving the Lincoln, which carried the victims, and that he was the one to back the car up to the makeshift grave. The defense asked Nixon on the stand if he was on drugs during the kidnapping and murders, specifically if he were under the influence of methadone. Nixon admitted that he was at the time, thus questioning his credibility as a witness. Nixon also admitted that he was the one to obtain the shovels for the purpose of digging the grave. Michael Jackson's trial would last less than a week, and on May 7th, 2007, the jury returned a verdict of guilty on all six counts, including the two counts of first-degree murder. Jackson would motion for a new trial several months later, but that motion was denied. At a Spencer hearing held on June 18th, less than a month before his sentencing, Jackson apologized to the victim's family. However, in the very same breath, stated that he could not be remorseful for crimes he did not commit. On August 29th, Jackson would face the penalty phase. The jury was split 8-4 to four on a death penalty recommendation, but in the end, the judge determined that the aggravating factors far outweighed the mitigating circumstances in this case, 
and Michael Jackson was subsequently sentenced to death. He would begin his appeal process right away, and his girlfriend Tiffany Cole was up next, as it was her time to face the music. Later that fall, in October of 2007, her trial would begin. Tiffany Cole maintained that she was influenced by her boyfriend, Michael Jackson, and that she had no knowledge that an abduction or murder was ever set to take place. She testified that she believed they'd only be stealing money and valuables. When the prosecution asked her to explain what the pre-dug grave was all about, Tiffany Cole said she thought it was simply a scare tactic, that they would force their victims into the hole, and once they received the ATM pin number, they would then let them go. Her lawyers also added that Tiffany thought the hole would be used to hide stolen evidence and not for disposing of two living, breathing human beings. Sadly, as we know, this was far from what actually ended up happening. The result would be that two innocent people were heinously killed over a sum not of $50,000 cash, but of approximately 5000 Tiffany Cole's defense would try to portray her as a misguided youth and a victim of circumstance who had a troubled home life. They brought up the fact that her father David Duncan was in prison at the time she was born and that she and her mother Shirley lived with Tiffany's grandmother for much of her early years. Her attorneys went on to tell the court that when her father was released from prison, Tiffany's parents' relationship became extremely volatile. Tiffany Cole was allegedly sexually abused by her father as well. She and her mother moved around a lot due to the tumultuous environment in the home until her father eventually died in 2005. Later that very same year, Carol and Reggie Sumner were kidnapped and murdered. Cole's lawyers would also bring up the fact that she had no prior criminal record. They highlighted how she was a Girl Scout, how she played the flute in high school, and was even at one point a cheerleader. While this was certainly a valiant attempt at tugging on the heartstrings of the jurors, there was still one more piece of critical evidence revealed in court that Tiffany Cole's defense team would have great difficulty simply explaining away. The state entered photographs taken from a disposable camera into evidence, pictures that were taken of the entire group immediately following the murders. In the images, Tiffany Cole, Michael Jackson, and Alan Wade can be seen flashing a wad of stolen cash while laughing, sipping champagne, and partying in a rented limousine, while Reggie and Carol Sumner slowly suffocated to death beneath the soft soil somewhere in the remote woods of southern Georgia. Witnessing these photographs is just one added layer to the existing depravity of this horrific crime, and the jury would ultimately agree. It would take just 90 minutes of deliberations for them to return with their verdict. Tiffany Ann Cole was inevitably found guilty on all six counts, including two counts of first-degree premeditated intentional homicide, just like her boyfriend, Michael Jackson. The jurors would also recommend she receive the death penalty in a vote of 9-3, to three. and five months later at her sentencing, she begged the judge to spare her life. But please remember that I didn't do this. I'm not the monster that created this, but I am sorry I met him. Judge, rather be I'm not asking for justice, but rather mercy. The same mercy that God has continues to give me. I believe that there are many more people that I can reach out to with God's guidance and your mercy. In the end, the court would show Tiffany Cole the same amount of compassion and human decency 
that she had shown her elders, Carol and Reggie Sumner. According to the state, 26-year-old Tiffany Cole got exactly what she deserved, and she was sentenced to death on March 6, 2008. As for Alan Wade, his fingerprints were also found on the abandoned Mazda that was left in the rundown parking lot. Of course, this was just the tip of the iceberg for Wade. At his trial, he would decline to testify in his own defense, and despite a similar sob story to that of co-defendant Tiffany Cole, Wade would also be found guilty on all counts, and on March 4, 2008, during the penalty phase of his trial, Alan Wade received a death sentence of his own. The jury had previously made this recommendation in a vote 11 to 1. At the time of her sentencing, Tiffany Cole was just one of three women on death row in the entire state of Florida. She was also the third youngest woman on death row in the entire United States. In 2015, she became the subject of an ABC production entitled A Hidden America, hosted by Diane Sawyer. Tiffany spoke on camera a decade after the murders, still refusing to take full responsibility for her involvement in the crimes. During the syndicated broadcast, she continued blaming her incarceration on her ex-boyfriend, Michael Jackson, but also stated that she was somehow a changed woman. I didn't know what was coming, and that's all I'm going to say about that. I am not the same person anymore. I have peace. I have joy. I have a sound mind. It's not over. There is forgiveness and there is hope. Unfortunately for Reggie and Carol Sumner, there is no peace, joy, or hope. But you might be asking, where did Bruce Nixon end up in all of this? The one man who decided to plead guilty to second-degree murder in order to get a better deal. Well, during his 2016 hearing, prosecutors asked the judge for a minimum sentence of 52 years in prison. The judge addressed the court, stating that he originally intended on handing down a life sentence for Nixon, but was somewhat swayed by his genuine remorse displayed in the courtroom, as well as what Carol Sumner's daughter Rhonda had to say. To everyone's great surprise, Rhonda spoke on Nixon's behalf, stating that he did the right thing by testifying against the others and explaining that she forgave him. The fact that Bruce Nixon had aided in the investigation, helping to bring justice in the case to his other three co-defendants, was strongly considered by the court. And in an act of great leniency, Bruce Nixon was ultimately given a 45-year sentence for his role in the kidnapping and murders of Reggie and Carol Sumner. Alan Wade, Tiffany Cole, and Michael Jackson were all headed toward exhausting their respective appeals. And while they'd all been denied on claims of ineffective counsel, a law would soon pass in the state of Florida that could save all three of them from lethal injection. Today in Duval County, a high-profile death penalty case is going back to trial as two men convicted in the 2005 murder of an elderly Jacksonville couple are resentenced. Alan Wade and Michael Jackson were sentenced to death along with Tiffany Cole after they were convicted of murdering Carol and Reggie Sumner by burying them alive. In 2017, all three would be granted resentencing trials. This came as a direct result of a decision made by the Supreme Court. The year before a 2016 law passed, ruling that anyone who was sentenced to death after the year 2002 but did not receive a unanimous jury recommendation would now be eligible for a new trial in the state of Florida. 
These prior sentences in question were ultimately deemed unconstitutional and a violation of Sixth Amendment rights, which meant at the time that a total of 150 felons were to be resentenced. This, in turn, included the likes of Tiffany Cole, Michael Jackson, and Alan Wade. One individual who vehemently disagreed with this decision was Reggie Sumner's sister. In a 2019 interview, she expressed her disappointment in the Florida justice system. I mean, we believe that they got fair trial, and we believe that they got uh, the right, you know, what was due to them. Most people are going to try to come back with something like that after the fact because they're going to try to find a loophole to get off. But justice has a voice and justice has to be served. I have family members that are still not the same and never will be the same. In fact, I don't like to involve them too much into things like this because I can't deal with it. As a result of the new law, the victim's family would be forced to relive these brutal murders all over again. In June of 2022, the resentencing trials for all three were scheduled to begin. But after an emotional outburst from Alan Wade during jury selection, Michael Jackson's attorney requested they be tried separately and at a later date. The judge ultimately granted the request and Jackson and Cole's trials were to be held at a later date, while Alan Wade's was first to get underway. But there would be even more theatrics to be had in the courtroom. Bruce Nixon, the star witness from the very beginning, decided to change his testimony live on the stand going back on his original claims made over a decade ago. This was in relation to why he and his co-defendants were digging the graves in the first place before the murders, which he apparently now had a different explanation for, almost 20 years later. Nixon was now claiming that he was pressured by his attorneys back in 2007 and that he was not in the right state of mind, stating that he was on Xanax, methadone, and in and out of consciousness, while on the stand at the beginning of Alan Wade's trial, he said that his previous attorney, quote, filled in the blanks for me on what to say. Nixon, now 35 years old, said that he didn't care what happened to him at this point. The judge informed Nixon that his actions could result in perjury charges, that he was jeopardizing his original plea agreement and that it could be revoked if he was to be resentenced like the others. He could also face the death penalty all over again himself. Nixon was subsequently removed from the courtroom and did not return. He did settle down eventually, however, and even though he wasn't allowed back in the courtroom, Nixon did provide written testimony that would be read aloud several days later, not by himself, but by a member of the state's attorney's office via a written transcript. The following audio is not Bruce Nixon's voice, but that of a member of the prosecution team speaking from that pre-recorded transcript. Why have you been living in jail since July 15, 2005? I participated in the murder of the Sumners. Of who? Sumners. Was that Carol and Reggie Sumner? Yes, sir. Are you guilty of participating in that murder? Yes, sir. Are you guilty of kidnapping Carol and Reggie Sumner? Yes, sir. Are you guilty of robbing them? Yes, sir. Are you guilty of killing them? Yes, sir. Are you guilty of killing them? Yes, sir. Have you pled guilty to those charges? Yes, sir. Who participated in that crime with you? Me, Alan Wade, Tiffany Cole, and Michael Jackson. And do you see Alan Wade here in court? Yes, sir. Would you please point to him and say where he's seated? Right there. In short, Bruce Nixon ended up sticking to his original testimony and abiding by his plea agreement. 
thus avoiding any additional charges. Next to speak was Reggie Sumner's sister, Jean Clark. She told the court how her brother was one of 11 children, explained that his father died when he was just six weeks old after a motorcycle accident. He was described as meek and gentle, someone who would eventually become a father figure, the rest of his younger siblings who were born after the loss of his father. Jean told the court just what it meant losing her brother and sister-in-law, Carol. I know my brother and my sister-in-law are gone and will never return. Where are they now? Can I see them? Can I call them on the phone? No, I cannot. Can I send them a birthday card to wish them happy birthday? Yes, I can. Only to have the card returned stamped. No such persons. Addresses unknown. Return to sender. James Reginald Carroll and Oxford Sumner or both have been missed by more than just our families through the years. Their love for people, their humility, their generosity will be continued through the lives of those he touched now, but now is void in the communities and lives of others. The giving, quite peaceful, moral, kind, upright couple are not here to help those who are down and out anymore. Our family as well as the community has lost the valuable couple. To Reggie and Carol, I'd like to say thank you for all you've done, both done for helping mankind. To my brother Reggie, I would like to say thank you for all you did for me in my childhood and adolescent years. Thank you for loving me unconditionally. I still miss you and love you dearly, even though many years have gone by. You will always be the part of my heart. I still hold fast to the memories of your nurturing love in my heart and my memories. I hold fast until then, till we reunite in heaven. As Alan Wade's resentencing trial continued, his defense team would ask the court to consider his own troubled background. They brought up the fact that Wade was allegedly sexually abused by a babysitter, that his father left him at an early age, and that his mother was diagnosed with breast cancer when he was just 13. His mother also testified in court admitting to abuse in the home and that she had even blamed Alan Wade for her cancer when he was just a boy. That same year, he began using cocaine. He was also kicked out of the home and left to fend for himself at age 15. Wade failed in school and was forced to repeat the sixth grade twice. He was also later denied admission to the United States Army after failing a drug test. The defense argued that these events influenced Allen as a person at the time of his crimes, as did his friendship with Michael Jackson specifically. His attorneys also asked the judge to consider his age, as Wade was the youngest of his four co-defendants at the time of the murders, just 18 years old. The prosecution would argue that Allen Wade knew exactly what he was doing, and that his age had no relevance or bearing in the murders. The clinical psychologist would also take to the stand offering his professional opinion that Alan Wade did in fact know right from wrong at the time of his participation in the murders. So I want to make sure that I understand that uh, people in late adolescence, 18, 19, 20, that they are capable of empathy, correct? Yes. And they understand the difference between right and wrong, correct? Absolutely. And they would intellectually be able to understand the concept of death. 
Absolutely. And understand the permanence of death. Absolutely. And that they would have the ability to know that murder is wrong. Yes. Which means Alan Way would have had those capabilities. I, I, unless there's something wrong with him um, that would limit that intellectual capability, yes, he would. He would. Well, have you looked at any of the intellectual capabilities of Mr. Way? I mean, I believe from what I read, he's of normal intelligence, so, yeah. There's no defect that you're aware of? No. Okay. Eventually, Wade's niece took to the stand to speak in his defense, leaving her murdering yet apparently remorseful uncle in tears there in the courtroom. What has your relationship with Alan meant to you, Jay? More than I can express, just having someone... He was there for me more than my own father was, even just through letters and, and summer visits. Do you love Alan? <laughs> Very much. Will you continue to love Alan if he spends the rest of his life in prison? Very much. It was at this point the jury had to be dismissed due to Wade becoming overly emotional. During closing arguments, the prosecution was sure to remind the jury that this was not a man who deserved life in prison but instead one who should remain on death row, urging the court to uphold his original sentence. Spending those last minutes and seconds of their lives clinging to their love. And that torture, that terrifying ordeal, is contemplated by our law objectively as a reason for charging further death. Alan Wade was then granted his opportunity to speak. He addressed the court, insisting that he was not the monster everyone made him out to be. Nothing I say here today is meant to justify, excuse, or defend my cowardly crimes. Reggie and Carol, if there's a window or a connection to the afterlife or some sort of cosmic consciousness... And I know you can see tremendous regret and shame in my heart. Every day I'm tormented by my cruel and careless actions against you. I should have helped instead of hurted you. I'm forever sorry for my senseless, unprovoked, undeserved actions against you. This is the most passionate regret and the biggest mistake of my life. I'm also sorry for the pain and loss I've caused the Sumner's family and friends. I'm sorry for the dishonor and disrespect I've shown to both their families and my own. And to both of these families, my apologies are without end. I'd like to thank the judge and his court for allowing me this opportunity. I apologize to the prosecution and the state for not being more cooperative. Also to the Sumner's family, this apology is long overdue. I'm sorry to the jurors for any trouble and inconvenience for you being here. I'm sorry you have to be exposed to the horrific things that I've done. When I was 20 years old, I arrived at prison. I turned 21 a couple months after, and for about a year, I couldn't stand to look at the man in the mirror. I was disgusted with the sight of myself, and I'd felt this way for some years before. But I really wanted him gone. I contemplated suicide on several occasions before finally accepting my fate. At some point around 22 or 23, I tore myself down. Everything I 
thought I knew, and I rebuilt myself and the views and my life views, and I started to develop a morality that fit me. At the end of his second trial, Alan Wade was resentenced to life without the possibility of parole and effectively removed from death row. After the verdict was read aloud, he was seen smiling ear to ear, relieved that he would not be executed, seemingly satisfied at an eternity behind bars, as opposed to meeting a fate similar to that of his victims. Had it not been for the sole juror who voted against the death penalty in his case 11 to 1 back in 2007, Alan Wade would remain on death row to this very day. Instead, his life will be spared and he will spend the rest of his days rotting in prison. Surprisingly, however, Alan Wade would go on to get married and even become a father while incarcerated. A woman he had been pen pals with relocated from France to Jacksonville after just a year of exchanging letters. Alan Wade proposed shortly thereafter, and the two eventually had a child together. When asked, she refused to reveal how she became pregnant considering conjugal visits were not permitted. Nevertheless, they somehow made it happen and the child was conceived, all as a result of this woman writing to various death row inmates and Alan Wade just so happening to be the one to respond. How romantic. As for Tiffany Cole and her boyfriend, Michael Jackson, things wouldn't end as, quote, happily ever after. Karma would come around in a much different way for these two, when Florida law would once again change regarding the fate of death row inmates. After the Parkland shootings that claimed 17 innocent lives, perpetrator Nicholas Cruz was spared a death sentence due to a deadlocked jury in October of 2022. The outcome rightfully caused an uproar and criticism from the community, forcing legislators to take yet another hard look at how these cases were currently being handled and in some cases reconsidered. Michael Jackson was scheduled to be resentenced in May of 2023, but a month before he was gearing up for trial, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis would sign an amended bill in April of 2023, revising the previous 2016 law. As a result, a jury's death penalty recommendation no longer needed to be unanimous, just in the majority. And in May of 2023, a jury of his peers would recommend for a second time that Michael Jackson be put to death. At the time of this episode's release, Michael Jackson's official sentencing date is scheduled for August 11, 2023. As for Tiffany Cole, her resentencing is scheduled for that same month. More than likely, her death penalty recommendation will remain as well, just like her boyfriend's. If there's one thing that can be learned from this case, it's that no good deed goes unpunished, and that there's no honor among thieves and even less humanity among anyone who's willing to bury an elderly couple alive for the sake of $5,000 split four ways. <laughs> 